Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And if you're new to the podcast, I'm the host, Neil Jackman from Avata Heritage, and I have the happy opportunity to chat with some of Ireland's archaeologists and experts to discuss the key periods, sites and techniques that inform us about life in Ireland's past. Please do subscribe on your favourite platform to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And we've had a few episodes now that have highlighted the importance of reappraising past excavations and the wealth of information that are contained within archives. And today's chat is another important example of that. Uh, so I'm delighted today to have the chance to chat with Dr. Michael Potterton of Maynooth University. Michael's core field of research is the history and archaeology of medieval Ireland, with a special reference to landscape and settlement. And today we're going to chat about Moyna Lock, a multi-phase project in every sense of the word. Uh, Michael, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. But to start, is it Moyna or Munya? Because I've feeling I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. Well, I think both of those are acceptable, Neil, but um, just let me say thanks very much indeed for inviting me along and uh, for letting me part, be part of this wonderful series and for talking about Munyalok. So I think the jury is still out on the pronunciation. If you read the name in a book, uh, M-O-Y-N-A-G-H, you'd of course say Moina. Uh, but if you worked on the site and you spoke to the locals, you'd have picked up the local accent and everybody locally calls it Munya. And so even myself, I find myself going from one to the other, partly depending on the audience and depending on whether I've been reading or talking about the site. Um, but it's a, a fascinating site, as you well know, and it's great to be able to, to have an opportunity to to talk to people about it. Fantastic. Can we set the scene a little? I mean, whereabouts is Munyalok and what kind of a site it, is it? And, you know, how was it first discovered? Was it a place that was well known locally um, before kind of the first discoveries were made there? Yeah, so um, Munyalok is um, in North County Meath. It's about a quarter of a mile or 400 metres or so southwest of the village of Nobber. It's set in a pasture and forestry landscape now. Um, the site itself is beside a small pool of water, what remains of Munya Lock, the lake uh, that we mentioned. And this was uh, a much larger lake originally, but it was drained in the 19th century. Um, it's a, an expanse, really, of the River Dee. And um, it was probably that river itself that brought the first settlers to the site at, at Munya. And the site had attracted uh, settlers over thousands of years, but for some reason, about a thousand years ago, it seems to have been abandoned one last time and it fell out of memory and was forgotten about until the middle of the 19th century or towards the end of the 19th century when it was rediscovered. Okay. And how was it rediscovered? Was it like somebody, uh, was it an accidental thing that an artifact was found or was it kind of something a little more deliberate than that? Yeah, well, it's, an, it's a very interesting story, actually, because one of the local farmers, a person by the name of Owen Smith, um, was a keen um, antiquarian himself. Uh, and in addition to his farming, he used to do a lot of fishing with friends. One of the places that they used to go to was this deep pool that was left, all that was left indeed of, of Munyalok. 
And they would fish at a place called the island, which was actually just a little peninsula that jutted out into the remaining waters. And apparently there was very good fishing to be had there. But on this one occasion in the summer of 1886, I think it was, when he went down to the site, it wasn't for a fishing expedition. It was uh, armed with a spade to dig into the ground that he was familiar with because he had recently been reading a book published not long before that by William Gregory Wood Martin on the lake dwellings of Ireland. And in going through the pages of that book, he had seen uh, drawings of objects that he recognized from previous fishing trips down to the island. And on this occasion in the 1880s, he started to dig into the soil at what turned out to be the site of the uh, multi-period site of Manulok, and he began to dig out artifacts that he then could compare with the illustrations of from the recent book, and he realized that he was onto something important. So he gathered up a, a grinding stone. I think there was a fragment of a, a lignite bracelet or a jet bracelet, a bone scoop, some flint objects and various other things. And he packaged them up and posted them to uh, Wood Martin who was delighted at this discovery. And of course, opening up the package, uh, he realized that these had come from somewhere important. And he read Smith's letter, which said that I've dug these up at a site close to Nobber in North County Meath, and I think you'll be interested in them. And he certainly was. Uh, Wood Martin realized immediately that these had come from a Cranogue site, uh, an artificial island in, in a lake. And he put them on display in Dublin. Um, subsequently, those artifacts were purchased by the National Museum and Wood Martin went off to the Royal Irish Academy, asked for a grant to fund uh, a small excavation at the site. He excavated the site in late 1888, if memory serves, and um, he presented his, his findings, but then family commitments, other publications, uh, distracted his attention, as we all know too well, and um, his involvement in Munulok ended. The site seems to have been forgotten once more, and it became just a, a footnote in one of his later books um, and, and was forgotten again um, in the late 19th century. And then, you know, just under a century later, it, it sort of came to light again. How did the story develop at that stage? What was that kind of next chapter? Yeah, that's right. Now, it's not entirely clear if there was any local memory whatsoever of the archaeological site or, or, or its significance. Um, but the landowner in the 1970s uh, was a, a local uh, person called Frank Brady, who's been a great supporter of this project all the way through. Mm -hmm. And in the late 1970s, um, Frank decided that they would try and level out some of the um, uh, marshier parts of the, uh, of the banks of the remaining pool, the area known as the island. Uh, and uh, it was during this in 1977 that the bulldozer started to move what turned out to be quernstones, animal bones, and a number of other small artifacts. So Frank, recognizing that was something important here, stopped the bulldozer work immediately. And as luck would have it, 
um, a person who will have been well known to you, uh, the late lamented George Ogan, was a local man. Uh, great archaeologist George Ogan is, is from Nobber. Frank knew him uh, and went up to the village uh, to find that George was off working on another archaeological site. George, of course, was directing the excavations at Nowth in the Boyne Valley. But as soon as George could make it onto the site, he came down to the site at Munyalok and looking at what had been turned up, looking at what had been discovered, he, like Wood Martin a hundred years earlier, realized immediately that this was these were the remains of a Cranog excavation and something would have to be done. And in terms of what the plan was to be done at that stage, I mean, was it kind of first viewed when, when George first encountered the site? Did he have the feeling that a lot of it was largely kind of disturbed and destroyed and, and that it was a case of uh, trying to record what was possible um, or, or was it seen as being such a large excavation from the beginning, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think there was any inclination at the outset of what they were really getting uh, involved in. Mm. Um, and, you know, a bulldozer can do a lot of damage even just in a few minutes. And it certainly had done a lot of damage. There's, you know, the photographs that George took on the day that he went down there show mm. how much disturbance had, had been created. And it was a very difficult and complex site in any case, even before the bulldozer got there. But George, understandably, felt that, you know, such was the level of destruction that a few weeks four or five weeks would probably be enough for uh, you know a, a professional archaeologist to resolve this to record it to have taken to the museum whatever needed to go there and then maybe have the site fenced off or just allow Frank to continue with his with his farming but George himself while he would be the obvious candidate to do this was busy directing these remarkable excavations not far away at at Nowth and Fortunately, um, or perhaps he would have said unfortunately, uh, John Bradley uh, was a young archaeologist at the time. He was an assistant to George at Nowth, had been, you know, making great strides there and proving himself to be uh, incredibly capable. George said, John, would you take up the uh, role of uh, carrying out this short four to five week excavation at Munyalok? And John, of course, jumped at the opportunity. And I remember speaking to John uh, years later when he said, why on earth was I there that day? Did I not know what millstone would be around my neck for two decades afterwards? But um, I, that was, of course, in jest because really Manulak and, and, and John almost became synonymous through the 80s and 90s. Um, far more had survived than anybody could possibly have realized in those days in 1977. And after a few days on the site, when they did begin, when John with Heather King and a few others, uh, Ed Burke and uh, a few others began their work in the early 1980s, they realized this was a much bigger project than anybody had realized at the time. And when they had that realization, Michael, that, you know, and I, I, it, it's funny actually because I had something very similar with Kilbegley when, uh, which was very well preserved medieval uh, early medieval mill. The first thing that was turned up was a couple of timbers, and we were looking at it going, oh, maybe there's not too much here. And then all of a sudden, it just grew and grew and grew. Um, when they were first kind of when they got that sense of just how much had survived, what was the plan at that point? Was it to kind of record and finish and say, okay, there's a really important site here let's leave it, or did they go to get funding to carry out uh, a more thorough research excavation over a number of seasons? 
Yeah, I think it was for the first couple of seasons and, you know, spoiler alert, it turned out to be 14 seasons over the course of 18 years through the 1980s and 1990s. And, uh, you know, of course, part of the reason that I'm here speaking to you is that the, the project is still incomplete in, you know, in 2022, a good 45 years after the rediscovery of the site. So four weeks has turned into at least 45 years. But for the first few seasons, it was very difficult for them to ascertain the depth of the stratigraphy of all of the layers that were there and the Mm -hmm. complexity of the site, both because of the archaeology, because of the nature of such a wetland site, and then due to the extra complications of everything being disturbed or so much being disturbed by by the bulldozer. But John got a lot of support, uh, of course, from George and from, and from Heather King, who was his assistant director from the outset. Um, he got a license from the National Museum and support from the National Monument Service and funding very importantly, from the Royal Irish Academy, who, of course, had funded it in the 1880s when Wood Martin had carried out a small excavation there, even though that site had been forgotten about. It was this same, this self-same site. And it was it was still felt that maybe three or four seasons, and these were summer seasons, um, where the core team was supplemented by students from UCD in particular, because George, uh, sorry, yes, well, George and and John were both lecturing in UCD at this stage. Heather had been doing postgraduate research there, and and students would would cut their teeth on uh, on on Munyalak archaeology, as it were, um, and so it was a training exercise as well as a, a recovery exercise, and it went on hand in hand with the work at Nouth for many summers through. The the 1980s. But the plan was to resolve as much as possible, to try and understand it as much as possible, to preserve the archaeology um, in in situ, because it, it was a site that wasn't under pressure like you'll be familiar with in terms of road schemes and infrastructural mm-hmm. developments. So the, the intention was to leave some of it in the ground. Um, but the plan had to change several times. It became increasingly uh, clear that there was a lot more to it than simply an early medieval chronog. And this um, became clear when there were prehistoric artifacts started to turn up. Beneath the construction levels of the chronog, they found late Bronze Age houses. Beneath that, uh, there were early Bronze Age house remains and hearths and various activities represented. And beneath that, again, there was... Um, uh, indeed, Mesolithic, uh, very substantial um, deposits of Mesolithic activity. So for some five or 6,000 years, people had been uh, coming to this site periodically. And uh, the 1980s and 1990s excavation were just the latest chapter in that. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible site. I mean, the depth not only of physical stratigraphy of the archaeology, but the depth of time at Munyalak is incredible. And going back to, um, you know, one of the young archaeologists that worked on that site was yourself, of course, isn't that correct? Yeah, Uh, that's right, yeah. And, you know, very sadly, um, John Bradley passed away around eight years ago now, Mm -hmm. and he's such a great loss to, to Irish archaeology and history, as well as his friends and family, of course. And, um, I was wondering if you could give, say a few words maybe about what it was like to work with John at Monilac and, um, you know, 
a little bit about his legacy. I know it's very difficult to do so, to give justice to it in, in a short conversation like this, but uh, yeah. Yeah, well, you're right. I certainly couldn't uh, do justice to, to John. As you know, many of your listeners will know, John Bradley um, is a great loss to Irish archaeology. It's actually this week, eight years ago, on the 7th of November, that John passed away all too early and all too young at just the age of, of 60. Um, John was a super archaeologist. He was a very, very fine teacher. Um, he had a remarkable mind, and he was a great friend to many, many, many people. Um, John had been born in Kilkenny uh, and he, he grew up not interested in sport and lots of other things that and hurling, of course, that uh, lots of the boys and girls would have been interested at that time. But he spent his evenings exploring the medieval buildings of uh, of Kilkenny and reading anything he could get his hands on and playing chess. Um, he was delighted to get accepted into UCD where he studied archaeology and uh, in, in, in studying archaeology and history, he was able to put into a much bigger context the development of medieval Kilkenny. And he was able to, with his remarkable mind, create all sorts of links between everything he read and everything he heard. Um, and he had an amazing capacity to retain information and to to sort that information and to make it intelligible to ordinary people um, like me and other students that were lucky enough to be in his class. As early as the age of 21, John published a really fine essay, a two-part essay on the development of the walls of medieval Kilkenny, which still, you know, 50 years later stands the test of time as a really fine piece of bringing together, you know, um, multidisciplinary approach to understanding any particular uh, issue or challenge in the medieval past. He looked at the archaeology, the upstanding architectural remains, the documentary sources. And it was the first of almost 200 i think articles and books that that john um uh that john published and of course he was also the director of the urban archaeology survey so not only was he directing the excavations at Munyalok through the 80s and, and 90s, but until the early 90s he was also directing the urban archaeology survey which in itself is a you know was a remarkable achievement and something perhaps we can come back to another day um and in all of that, John became the foremost expert on Ireland's medieval towns. He was a founding member of the Friends of Medieval Dublin, um, but he had served his apprenticeship uh, under one of the great archaeologists Ireland has ever produced, one of the greatest, uh, George Ogan, who also uh, uh, passed away recently and is a great loss to Irish archaeology. Um, and John you know, was always cognizant of what he had learned from George and George's support, uh, not just for him, but for other young scholars coming through. And, and John, I think, was very much like that. He was cut from the same cloth as George, always a great supporter of his students um, and always keen to listen to suggestions and interpretations by you know, students working away, volunteers working on the site, local people working on the site. What did they think it was that they were digging and what did they think was important about it? He was a gentleman in every sense, a very compassionate and, um, and a very sympathetic man. And it's not just archaeology that is at a loss following John's passing. It's a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, John was always committed to an understanding of um, Ireland's heritage, generally speaking, but particularly the, the Middle Ages and, and its prehistoric archaeology, uh, an understanding and a preservation of it. 
I remember he was quite upset by a lot of the developments that took place um, in terms of um, infrastructural developments and the destruction of archaeology and heritage as he saw it. He was actively involved in the, the Wood Key campaign of the late 1970s and 1980s. Um, and he was disappointed at some of the things that happened, for instance, at Carrick Mines and at Tara, and especially in his own beloved Kilkenny. Um, but for a lot of this time, he he loved his summers in, um, you know, in North County Meath. And he would always, um, despite the jokes he would make about, oh, not another summer at Munyalock, not another <laughs> summer with a head in the in, in the bogs of North Meath. But he would he would love the trips back with with the students and colleagues to the excavations at, at Munya. And I was fortunate to have been a student of John's in UCD in the um, in the early 1990s, and then to start as a volunteer and then a supervisor. And ultimately, um, after Heather King had moved on to uh, work in the National Monument Service, I, I became the assistant director uh, under John at, at, at Munya. And um, it was really, uh, um, a very rewarding time. Uh, the the archaeology was remarkable. Of course, one of the first excavations I ever worked on. I think I assumed all excavations were like this, and that one day you might be excavating uh, Mesolithic flints and um, uh, tools, and the next day there'd be early Bronze Age houses and spreads of grain and amber beads, and then there'd be um, Bronze Age spearheads turning up on the other side of the site, and so on. Um, obviously, there was something of a rude awakening when I moved on to my next <laughs> excavation after that. Um, I'd, I've I've fond memories of all sorts of aspects of of the work and of the, of the people. In fact, I remain very close to many of the people who, some of whom have moved out of the discipline of archaeology now. But John used to have this this wonderful um, practice on uh, on a Thursday evening uh, every week. Uh, everybody would gather together about an hour before we would normally sort of quit for the day, and he would. Um, get us all to get our sort of grubby tea mugs and uh, he would uh, pour us all a small glass of cheap red wine that he'd probably picked up in Navan shopping center or something. And we would have do a walking tour around the site and each supervisor would say, well, this week, um, you know, XYZ person were working here and we traveled back this area and we found this and we recorded that and so on. And then we'd move on to the next area where a different supervisor had been working and everybody would listen and, and learn what had been happening at, on a different part of the site. Mm. Um, and John, almost every week, you, without fail, John would then say, yes, that, that's all very interesting, Michael or Brian or Sharon, whoever it was, but what does it all mean? And this was John's question, what does it all mean? Sure, there were six post holes and there were four amber beads and there, were, there was a hearth and there was some burnt grain and there was a quern stone. But what does it all mean? And, um, you know, we sort of joked and laughed about this question for John, from John. Um, but it, it was probably the most important question that has been asked about the site. What what does it all mean? What does it tell us? What what were the things that we were finding telling us about the people who lived there in the past? After all, that was the main reason we were carrying out our research. Why did they build there? What did they build? How did they do it? How long did they live there? And these were John's big questions. Um, I don't think we can probably still answer those questions, um, but uh, but I've certainly very very fond memories of the site. Yeah, it's a, what an incredible experience! And as you say, it's a it's a difficult follow up 
when you luck to, to find another site yeah, anywhere, anywhere close to it in your career. Um, at looking at the kind of the site, if we could look at it in terms of uh, let, let's go from the earliest activities the up to the early medieval period, which is perhaps um, where it's more famed, if you like. Could you walk us through some of those initial phases of activity? Uh, what was happening there, for example, at the beginning? What was the earliest thing you found? And what does it tell us about how the people were using that particular site at that time? Okay, that's uh, quite a task now. But um, so if we cast our minds back about a little over 6,000 years, so we're in the, the Mesolithic, quite late in the Mesolithic, um, I think we can be fairly sure that a number of um, hunter-gatherer people, a family, an extended family, arrived at the site, uh, probably along the water or the water's edge, and identified a site that was suitable for habitation, for, for, for settlement. Now, of course, these were hunter-gatherers, so this was not going to be a permanent settlement. They were dependent on uh, the movement of herds of animals, of, of deer. Um, they were dependent on the seasonal growth of berries and uh, fruits and nuts and so on. But they, of course, needed somewhere to sleep and somewhere to stay, and they would have um, stayed seasonally at places like Manulok. And they seem to have found there, um, beside what was some of the deepest water of the lake, some shallows, and at least two, if not three or more, knolls or mounds on which they seem to have um, built shelters. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say huts or houses, but, but shelters perhaps uh, for staying for a short period of time, perhaps from which they fished maybe 6,000 years before Owen, fished, Owen Smith fished from almost the exact same location. And we have evidence there that they made tools, that they were involved in the napping of mostly chert, uh, but also flint, that they made um, large uh, weapons and tools, blades, and that this was actively done on site. There was evidence for quite a lot of burning, so we have uh, some radiocarbon dates from the charcoal from that burning. And the earliest we have for the Mesolithic levels is about 4,300 BC. So okay. some six to six and a half thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so th those were the, the, the deepest uh, levels, if you like, both chronologically and physically on the site. And the lake levels must have risen um, at some stage which enforced the abandonment of the site. And it was no longer inhabited even seasonally during the Mesolithic. So there were probably a couple of generations of people who came and went um, periodically along the river to this particular site and they left evidence for their presence behind. But then the water levels rose, perhaps some form of climatic change, which of course is a, a topical subject. And it's only really recently during the post-excavation analysis that we have appreciated the significance of the Neolithic, the New Stone Age activity on the site. We did know that there had been some activity during the, the Neolithic, the period that comes after the Mesolithic at, at Manulok, because, and I can remember the day that uh, Mark Mullally, uh, who was one of the um, uh, students working on the site at the time, excavated this, uh, this cache of, or a, a hoard of Neolithic flint tools, about 170 of them. Um, but we thought that that was an isolated discovery of, of, of Neolithic date. 
but actually close analysis of the overall assemblage of, of lithics, of stone tools from the prehistoric levels at Munya, um, which is being carried out currently by, by Graham Warren and his team at UCD. That analysis is showing that there is much more um, depth and complexity to the Neolithic activity at Munya than had previously been appreciated, even in, in John's time. Um, and, and so that was, is going to add a, a phase, it's going to add some complication, but it's going to add a, a phase of, of, of interesting um, uh, work to the project as well. And then again, after the Neolithic, the, the site was uh, covered over in lake mud, naturally through the rising waters, abandoned, of course, because the place, whatever these Neolithic people had been up to there, was no longer viable. Mm -hmm. And then sometime around 1900 or 2000 BC, um, the site became available for settlement once again. And whatever it is about this site, people kept coming back to it. It's partly due to its location, um, the shallows beside the deep water. Uh, it's a site that's surrounded by... Um, what we refer to as Drumlin territory in the, the north of County Meath, where um, you start to get that glacial landscape, um, moraines. So the site is actually um, quite low lying, but it's surrounded by hills, which provides it some protection from the elements, the wind especially, but mm -hmm. also probably some, uh, some protection in terms of defensive uh, qualities too. So in the early Bronze Age, about 1900 BC, people settled there once more. Uh, and this time we know that they built houses and that they were there for um, longer periods, what you might call permanent settlement. These weren't uh, ephemeral houses. They weren't uh, the houses or homes of hunter-gatherers. Mm -hmm. This was an agricultural community. They grew grain. Uh, they mm -hmm. they um, they had hearth, hearths in their houses. They imported goods from uh, overseas. We have um, amber, which isn't found uh, native in Ireland, which had been brought in. Uh, we find a range of pottery, some really nice early early Bronze Age pottery, um, some evidence for spinning activity and weaving, uh, and a few other objects. Um, and then, of course, uh, um, as we'd come to expect, the site was abandoned once more, and it was inhabited again in the later Bronze Age, when more houses were built. And uh, again, the range of artifacts that was discovered suggests that these people in the late Bronze Age were what you could generally refer to as high status. These were inhabitants of uh, of a wealthy background, if you like. The, the weapons that they had, the objects that they were able to lose on site were of a, of a, of a high status. But again, they too were um, dependent on the on the rising and falling waters and when the site was um, inundated again at the end of the 8th century BC they uh, they abandoned the site and open water mud accumulated um, uh, and nobody seems to have been there for about a thousand years so what we have then in, in the prehistoric period is is periodic and opportunistic use of the site by various groups of people, initially on a on a seasonal basis and then on a more permanent basis, but all the while dependent on the the, the rising and falling waters of of the lake. That's very interesting, and I suppose you know people who who would be familiar with the site might be thinking of it as a cranog. Um, could you introduce the idea of what a cranog is for people who mightn't be familiar with that term? Like, what what sort of a monument was it? Are there many of them? You know, whereabouts in the country can you find them? 
if you give us a little bit of a kind of an introduction to what these monuments are. Okay. Um, so Munya is best known as a Cranog, um, despite the fact that there were all those layers of prehistoric mm. activity pre-Cranog before it. Um, and generally speaking, uh, a Cranog is a partly or wholly artificial island. That's to say it's uh, it's made by people, uh, although they might take advantage of a, a naturally existing knoll or small island. They're usually found in lakes or sometimes in estuaries, but most often in uh, in lakes. And uh, therefore, their their distribution in, in Ireland is essentially where the lakes are. If you look mm -hmm. at a distribution of the dots on a map, uh, you might say, oh, there are very few Cranogs in the south and the east. And that's essentially because there are very few lakes in the south and in the east. There are far more in the west. But the great, greatest concentrations of Cranogs in Ireland are in the, the north and the west of, of the country where you find the, the lakes. Um, they're not unique to Ireland. There's probably something in the region of 12 or 1400 Cranogues known in Ireland, but there are also several hundred known in Scotland as well, mm -hmm. and a handful elsewhere. They were probably first built in late prehistory, maybe in the in the very late Bronze Age or in the Iron Age, um, but they were mostly built and used during the early medieval period, the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Uh, some were used and reused maybe um, into the, the later medieval period. Some mm. of the, the features of the locations remained attractive throughout. And so, of course, people would, would take the opportunity to, to use them and reuse them. But primarily, they're um, an artificial island in lakes, uh, in therefore in the wetter parts of the country. Um, and they're uh, about 1,200 or so known from, from Ireland. And when we're looking at them, I mean, we're talking about a period, especially within the early medieval period, which is, you know, roughly contemporary with ring forts and cashels, which would be more common, if you like. Uh, what sort of kind of are the key differences? Are, are they more like a waterborne version of one of those, if you like? Or are they being used in a slightly different way? Are they, are they kind of more defensive fallback positions redoubts already more like a, a lakeside spa for a wealthy <laughs> landowner kind of thing yeah well, well perhaps a little bit of all of those things but um firstly there are far fewer cranogs in in ireland than than ring forts mm -hmm. maybe 1200 cranogs maybe something in the region of forty thousand ring forts so um you know a ring fort is a a semi-defended farmstead of your agricultural classes in early medieval Ireland. Mm -hmm. And they certainly have similarities, their their shape and some of their functions and uh, the fact that they were um, partly defensive um, is is comparable, the ring fort and the, the Cranog. I would suggest maybe, you know, the, the, the ring fort is, you could compare it to a more modern two up, two down type of habitation, whereas the Cranog is the big house. Um, the, the Cranog, based on our understanding from the archaeological evidence, certainly, um, and from the artifacts that are found, is the residence um, of higher status, wealthier individuals. These are people, even now, if you think about it, uh, dwelling on a lake, on, a, on an island in a lake mm -hmm. is something, you know, the preserve of the, the rich and famous, if you like, um, owning an island or being able to uh, rent a house on an island is, is you know, all the rage I've heard. So I think the same was probably true in the, in the 7th and 8th centuries. 
Um, it's hard to understand exactly the relationship between the Cranogs and Ringforts and between their inhabitants. Um, Munya, for instance, the Cranog at Munya Lock is surrounded, as I mentioned, by hills. And those hills uh, are home to 15 or 16 Ringforts. So there's one Cranog in the lake that we know of and 15 or 16 Ringforts surrounding it. And they're inhabited roughly at the same time through the same centuries. Uh, so we don't really know what the relationship between the people uh, living in one site and the other was. Were the people in the ring forts, the farmers who provided the Cranog dwellers with their food and fuel and raw materials, for instance, were they the sort of tenant farmers? Did the did the Cranog dwellers own essentially the land on shore? Um, or did the same people, as you say, you know, did people live on the on the ring fort and only have to retreat out to the Cranog in times of difficulty or times of of, of insecurity? Um, you know, those are some of the questions that that people have been looking at and that you know we hope to look at within the within the Munyalock project. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And it makes you think about the kind of seasonality of something like a Cranog as well, because part of you would think maybe in the winter months it, it could probably be a little cold and unpleasant there. Uh, but at the same time, at the summer, anyone who spent a bit of time in the bogs with the midges and everything yeah, probably absolutely. wouldn't like it too much then either. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's interesting. But as you say, they, they do seem to uh, produce a lot of very high-status kind yeah. of materials and could we perhaps uh, look at you know the kind of activities that the excavations revealed that was happening uh during the early medieval period at, at Munyalak mm. so it it would appear to have been a particularly wealthy site the Cranog at Munyalak I think it would be fair to say wasn't just an ordinary Cranog, if there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. It seems to have been the residence of a relative of a well-to-do, wealthy local elite, perhaps, based on both the size of the Cranog and the main house that was discovered, the array of artifacts and the evidence for the various crafts that were taking place there. So um you know, on the site were found a series of round huts and the remains of several houses and pathways. There were several metalworking areas, both for um, blacksmithing or, or ironworking and for fine metalworking, uh, evidence for working of gold, for instance. Um, there were various uh, furnaces and hearths, evidence for, for burning, uh, for cooking, of course. Uh, there were cesspits. Um, there was evidence for a range of woodworking, including the construction of the, the houses themselves and the various other features within the, the site, and then a timber palisade, various generations of the timber palisade, um, and quite an amazing collection of, of objects, including um, bronze and iron weapons. Uh, there were jewellery and tools. They were objects made from antler and horns and bone as well as glass, uh, some imported from Merovingian France, it would seem. There was leather and evidence for leather working on the site. Uh, there were crucibles and molds and um, and, and tools for, for metalworking. There was uh, flint uh, used probably for making sparks to light fires, uh, enamel, uh, jet and lignite as well as some pieces of uh, some small pieces of gold and gold filigree 
Um, the amber was imported from overseas, the glass, as I've mentioned, and some of the pottery. So through most of this period, this early medieval period that we're talking about, Ireland is generally aceramic or without pottery. There was very little pottery produced locally in, in Ireland. There had been plenty of pottery, as I mentioned, in the Bronze Age, uh, not a lot in the Iron Age, uh, almost none in the early medieval period, and then a lot again in the later medieval period. But at Munyalok, they did have access to pottery, but it too was imported from overseas, which mm. indicates, I suppose, connections with these places, communication, um, and and probably high status. It wasn't everybody who could um, afford to or had the opportunities to import these goods from, from overseas. Um, and then just, I suppose, generally speaking, in terms of the, the dating of the activity here, we had the survival of quite a lot of wood was excellent because we could get some radiocarbon dates, but we could also get some dendrochronological dates, which can be even more accurate than radiocarbon dating. And we've got two really important dates from two large timbers on the site, one 625 AD and one 748 AD. And the large house, um, the largest house known from early medieval Ireland at 11.2 meters across um, has been dated to 748 AD. And quite likely the autumn of that year, it's quite remarkable to be able to say with such precision when the timber was felled for that uh, for the construction of that house. Um, but that gives us an idea of the, the time span from the early 7th through to the mid or late 8th century, probably six generations or so. So um, probably six generations of the of the same family, mm -hmm. um, extended family living at this one particular site until it was finally abandoned then, maybe sometime around 800, until its rediscovery by Owen Smith a millennium later. And not to put you on the spot, but with, with such oh. a site being so um, obviously the home of a very significant family, are there any kind of analytic references? Uh, do we know what kind of kingdoms or lordships, like who who could be a contender? If you like yeah. for, for well, home. we the the royal we I'm certainly would be straying away from my my own comfort zone such as it is uh, in, in talking about this, but thankfully we have had the expertise of of Edel Ranock, who I'm mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, mm -hmm. um, looking at this and Edel back in the 1990s when uh, John was still working on the site had identified one reference to. Yeah potential reference to to Munyalak in uh, a contemporary early medieval source. And um, thanks to the reignition of the project in, in recent years, Adele has agreed to go back to her files and go back to her research and has identified a further two references. So there are three known references uh, to what Adele believes to be the site and the the, the family at Munyalok um, in the uh, in the seventh and eighth centuries, and Idel is currently, as we speak, almost uh, working on this with a conference a few weeks ago, and uh, Idel spoke at that, and that was a, a great uh, focus and incentive to to get her back into her her papers. So, yeah, it's it seems that we do have some tentative references to Lock de Mundok 
this uh, lake of the two Mundocks, perhaps two people called Mundok, um, which is associated with the Mugnorne, this uh, group of people uh, in the, you know, in, in that part of County Meath in the seventh and eighth centuries. Um, so the, it's it's tentative at the moment. We don't have a lot of detail, but it will be super to be able to tie in the the physical site on the ground, the archaeology, the international connections, and some documentary written sources as well. That's phenomenal. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because it just adds that layer of um, it allows you to kind of really picture the place once you yeah. start getting things like names. You know, I think it's very exciting. It, it is, and. Looking, you know, from the final excavation, when was the final excavation and, and how has this new project begun? Um, so in at the end of each season, um, Neil, as I'm as I mentioned, you know, this was the, the excavation was directed by John and in the initial years was with, with Heather King and a whole team of other people. And then latterly, I became involved at the end of each season. We would um, wrap up the site um and uh, in anticipation of coming back the following season and that was the case throughout most of the 80s and the 1990s and in 1998 i think it was in the summer of 1998 in late august or early september uh, a core team of uh, hardy volunteers and supervisors stayed behind for a final week um to put tarpaulins over the site semi-permeable membranes and then to put a certain amount of soil down to keep those in position um, fully believing that we would be coming back again the following May or June to begin another season. We had a series of research questions. We had a series of you know, incomplete uh, uh, trenches and cuttings. And uh, as it had been for 15, 14 seasons, we thought that would happen. And for various reasons, um, to do with funding, to do with John's availability, uh, to do with access to the land and a few other things. It didn't happen in 1999, but we still felt that we were going to be back on site in 2000, um, but that didn't happen. And then John got involved in other projects. Um, the uh, funding went to other projects. Uh, I was no longer available. I was working somewhere else at the time. And uh, we never got back to finish the site. It was always John's intention to go back. But as we've mentioned all too, unfortunately, John passed away eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And that excavation remained incomplete. And the report remained incomplete and unpublished. The artifacts, roughly 10,000 of them, are here in Maynooth University on campus. Um, all of the files, all of the archive, all of the photographs, the drawings, the folders, the notebooks, the diaries, the slides, the samples uh, are here in, in Maynooth. John had started out in UCD as a student and then as a, as a lecturer, but in 1996 he came to Maynooth University and therefore the, uh, the university uh, here was uh, responsible for uh, John's role at the excavation. And... Um, and when John passed away, it was unclear what was going to happen to that. And as luck would have it, in 2015, I started uh, my new role as a lecturer here in the Department of History. Um, and I suppose various stars began to align and the opportunity came up to, to pick up the pieces, as it were. And uh, I spoke to various parties and various individuals um, who encouraged me to put together a, a team, a, a steering committee. Um, and I was 
really, I suppose I wasn't that surprised, but it was great. Uh, it was um, great to know that so many people were incredibly supportive of, of the idea. People wanted to see the project finished. They realized the importance of the site, the excavation, the archaeology, and also for John, um, there was a lot of goodwill towards the project. And so in 2018, we um, rebooted the project with a new steering committee, a new core team, support from the Department of History here and the university uh, in collaboration with UCD, where John had been before. And as I've mentioned, various strands of the project have been taking place. And very importantly, and for the third century in a row, with funding from the Royal Irish Academy. So having funded it in the 1800s, the 1900s, now here in the 2000s, the Royal Irish Academy have taken this on as one of their legacy projects. And I'm very fortunate to be the project director um, and to have a team of people both here in Maynooth and at Belfield and UCD, as well as a variety of other specialists and experts um, to lend their expertise and experience to the project so that we can see it fully published and the archive and the artifacts in due course uh, when properly catalogued and properly researched go to their rightful place in the national museum that's incredible and if we can kind of take a look at you know with the site of this complexity what sort of different sorts of uh, specialist analysis are you calling on uh, at this stage, how many different people are involved and what kind of things are they looking at? Yeah, it, it is very complex. It's very exciting because there's so many different strands to it, each leading to different uh, new discoveries, new pieces of information. And um, it's something of a headache, but it's also very exciting trying to tie those various strands together. And I suppose to try and answer that question, what does it all mean? But we have... Uh, John had already overseen the completion of a number of strands of post-excavation. It's important, you know, that that's that's clear. John's John's writing was very very good. He he had a very good understanding of the archaeology of Munya, and of course, as I've suggested, his understanding of the broader context and how it compared to other sites and other places was excellent. And he did write preliminary reports at the end of each season, and that was you know, a, a condition of the excavation license, of course. He also published widely. I mean, John published something in the region of 18 or 20 um, um, summary reports of various aspects of the excavation at Munyalak. And he brought in specialists, both looking at samples and looking at finds and other aspects of the site. Some of that work was completed and some of that work was published, but a lot remained unpublished. And the other thing I suppose about the, the the passage of time since the since 1998 is that there are now new people with new approaches. There are new techniques and technologies available that simply didn't exist two or three decades ago, and and so while it's a pity that that time had elapsed between the last excavation um, and the ultimate publication of the report, the silver lining, I suppose, if you could call it that, is that. Um, it provides us now with opportunities that simply wouldn't have been there before. Mm -hmm. And so people like Adele are revisiting their earlier work. Uh, Ed Burke, who looked at those uh, imported Merovingian glass vessels um, in back in the 1990s, is now looking at them again and comparing them to other things that have uh, come to light in, 
in the intervening years. And similarly, we've got um, young postgraduate researchers in Ireland and overseas involved in this, looking at things in entirely different ways with uh, funding from different quarters and with uh, science and, uh, and and technology that uh, that wasn't available to them in the past. So we we're, we like to look at the, the glass half full in that sort of way, I suppose, Neil, that these are providing mm -hmm. us with opportunities. Um, so we've, we're picking up the pieces of what had been done before and we're doing as much as we can, as well as we can of new strands of approach. Now that's possible when we have, for instance, the samples to do it with. You know, John wouldn't have been aware in the 1980s of the possibility of isotopic analysis of certain remains and so on. So therefore, they weren't necessarily kept or looked for during the excavation. Mm -hmm. But sometimes um, he, he did uh, arrange that samples, that certain samples were kept and those have been used. So we have... For instance, uh, Steve Davis uh, in Belfield has been looking at the um, the entomological or the insect remains and and trying to reconstruct a picture of the landscape um, through from the Mesolithic to early medieval uh, Ireland, or at least North County Meath, and through microscopic analysis of samples that were taken back in the 1980s, it's been possible to um, to make some observations about the environment back then and the changing mm -hmm. environment over time. Mm -hmm. um, Finbar McCormick in Queen's University in Belfast, who recently retired, had carried out um, a, a major study of the enormous assemblage of animal bones, especially from the early medieval period, but also from the Mesolithic. But in the intervening years, more uh, bone samples were kept. And now we have Ruth Carden on board, carrying out a detailed uh, study of those uh, those animal bones. And of mm. course, she's suggesting all sorts of different types of um, isotopic analysis that can be done on, on the bones and teeth to look at it in different ways. Lorna O'Donnell has been looking at the charcoal samples and mm. telling us a little bit more about the landscape and the type of vegetation, the type of shrubs and trees that would have been growing. And she has identified uh, a whole suite of uh, charcoal samples that would be perfect for radiocarbon dating. So we've set up a collaboration with uh, Chrono 14 in Queen's University in Belfast, and they've already carried out um, 30 to 40 new radiocarbon date uh, um, uh, tests for us. So we've got a whole suite of new dates to tie into the framework that John had put together uh, before uh, before his untimely death. So those, I suppose, in terms of the, the the samples and the environmental studies, those are some of the things that are that are happening. Uh, we have a link with York University as well, and Eleanor Green there has been um, analysing some of the coprolites, some of the fossilised faeces from the site. Now, I have to say, initially, we assumed that most of that was was human, but it turns out to be mostly canine, mostly dog poo. Oh, and right. uh, we have one of the most extensive collections of uh, coprolites. I'm not sure how much of a claim to fame this is, but <laughs> one of the most ext extensive collections of coprolites from any early medieval site in Ireland or Britain. Um, but it turns out that most of them are from dogs. Now, that's not uh, entirely uh, a waste, as it were, because, of course, we can uh, make observations about the diet of those dogs, about some mm -hmm. health health issues they may have had. And, and Eleanor is currently working on that uh, in, in, in England. 
And then, of course, there's the the artifacts. I mean, there's a, just yes. such a wonderful array of artifacts. I, I mentioned some of the materials that were used. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got a, a whole suite of studies that are underway at the moment, some funded through the direct funding we get from the Royal Irish Academy, under others funded by um, uh, um, uh, grants that are have been uh, attained and uh, got by other individuals and researchers. So Brendan O'Neill and Avril White and uh, colleagues have been looking at early evidence for um, metalworking and metallurgy in, in medieval Ireland. And they've been looking at the crucibles and the moulds as well as the metal itself and Brendan tells me that it's beyond doubt, he says, that um, Munya is a key site in understanding the detail of early non-ferrous metalworking in Ireland, and that this is going to be um, a, a site type, if you like, that will shed information, not just about this particular place, but about um, metalworking all across the island. Um, Billy Sines has been looking at the the bone combs. We have something in the region of 60 bone or antler combs from early medieval levels at Munyalok. And um, Billy is uh, doing really amazing research on this, including experimental archaeology, where he's recreating some of the combs using, insofar as is possible, the techniques and tools that would have been used in the 7th and 8th centuries. And then seeing how um, the challenges and problems that those comb makers would have come up against. Um, Carol Smith in the National Museum has been carrying out um, X-radiography of a lot of what looked like just clumps of rusted, corroded iron. And in many case, cases, the X-rays are showing that that is pretty much what they are. They are clumps of fairly nondescript iron. But in the four or 500 that she's looked at so far, she's identified 20 or 30 really fascinating objects that can't be seen with the naked eye and in some cases have actually rotted away or rusted away completely but they leave the traces in the x-rays that can be seen mm -hmm. and at the conference a few weeks ago here in Maynooth Carol was showing images of some of these x-rays that she uh, ha has taken and Billy had just been talking about the bone combs in the previous paper and said, you know, wouldn't it be so great if we could find some of the tools that they used for making these combs? And clearly a saw was one of the things they used, you know, cutting the teeth or at least between the teeth of the combs. And lo and behold, in the next paper, Carol put up this slide of images and Billy says, stop, stop, stop. And he looked at one of the little images. And sure enough, if you look closely, you can see a serrated edge in the bottom of one oh, of these wow. apparently just blobs of, of nondescript iron. And closer analysis since then has shown that this is a saw. This is an early medieval saw. It comes from not the exact same context or layer as one of Billy's combs, but from one right beside it that dates to the same period. And so it's opportunities like this that you think, well, you know, it's such a pity that the work wasn't published and wasn't done before. But this sort of discovery wouldn't be possible. You know, mm -hmm. Carol wouldn't be X, you know, X-raying all these things now from boxes in the crypt in the museum, probably. And Billy might not have been able to get the funding to look at these at these combs. So mm -hmm. we're we are seeing, you know, as I say, the silver lining, the glass half full, and the opportunities for collaborative research and meaning collaborative research across mm -hmm. institutions, across universities, um, with people, with. Uh, new interpretations, new observations about what are being found. And I think 
I, I like to think at least, you know, John would be really happy with this, not just that the work is being done on the site, but that young and upcoming students um, are looking at these things in a new light and yes. are addressing that question of what does it all mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it creates a brilliant model for what can be done with these big legacy sites, if you like, if that's the right term for them. Mm -hmm. Not easy to coordinate a bit, but at the same time, you know, that collaboration is so strong. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant to hear about it. And speaking of the artifacts, as somebody who worked on the site yourself, did you have a particular favorite one that you came across <laughs> or was there a moment on the site that you found yeah, something or, or something I, I, yeah i feel like that's you know so which is your favorite child type question <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but um i'm not sure if i could answer that question but you know as i mentioned there'd be a, a day when something remarkable would be found on one corner of the site and then something equally or even more remarkable would turn up somewhere else and you'd mm -hmm. go you'd go up to get your sandwiches at the village for lunch and you'd come back and all of these other things would it really was like a, you know a candy shop a sweet shop for 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 kids and mm -hmm. so i i did have some what to me were remarkable uh, discoveries and you know, as I spent time on the site, I became more senior and seemed to become more and more distanced from the actual archaeology, from troweling, which was my favorite thing on a site like that. So whenever John would go, and I was supposed to be writing up notebooks or things like that, if John would go off for a meeting, I'd be back down, you know, troweling <laughs> in various areas, looking for looking for things and looking. Well, of course, John would say, we're always looking for information. That's mm -hmm. what we're really looking for. So had I a favorite? I Finding an amber bead was always amazing, particularly in that very wet sort of peaty soil, mm. because the, the amber bead was usually, you know, wet and glistened. And, uh, you know, you'd hear that little tap as the edge of the trowel hit it. Um, that, that was amazing. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the, the sort of the romance of archaeology, if you like, that attracts a lot of people there in the first place, is the discovery, the discovery mm. of these things that have been lost for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. The one thing, however, that, you know, I just remember the moment I found it so clearly and vividly was the discovery of what turned out to be a bronze, a bronze age hair ring, a decorated hair ring um, that would had probably had silver or gold on it. At least I like to think that, but was only lead when I found it. Um, mm -hmm. All that was left was the lead, but it was it was wet in the in the peaty soil when I found it. And it and as soon as it came out of the ground, it started to to dry and to change. Like in the seconds that I had discovered it, when I realized what it was, um, it started to, um, to, to just to dry and to look different, a different sort of gray shade. But as I was finding it, almost to the second, George Ogan stepped across the stile and into the site coming for one of his regular uh, visits, you know, every every week or so, John would leave Nouth early one evening and come over to just see how things were going. So it wasn't entirely unusual to see him, but it was just at that moment because George was the leading expert on these Bronze Age hair rings. In fact, he'd recently published an article about them. Mm -hmm. And so as I sort of stood up with this on the, uh, on the little shovel that I had, and I looked up wondering what this was. George appeared over my shoulder and he said, ah, yes, that's clearly a hair ring of type 2B. And I thought, wow, they, what they say about George is amazing. <laughs> he just knows absolutely, absolutely everything. So it was yeah. the find itself, but also the circumstances and and the, the things. So that, that I think, not just in terms of discoveries at, at Manulok, but, you know, certainly one of my all-time 
favorite and most memorable discoveries uh, in in archaeology completely oh, it doesn't get much better than that I think no it doesn't yeah that's that's pretty magical um looking at everything we know from the site and particularly from the early medieval phase of Moniola, what can the site you know and, and this reappraisal now and the information that's already come into light from it what does the site tell us about early medieval island or, or does it add to our store of knowledge about that period because i suppose in some ways it's a period that um would be most associated when people think of irish archaeology they tend to think of things like clamet noise and the book of kells and this that and the other Do you know how does monulock tell us about life in in this kind of pivotal era yeah um wow that is an interesting question i wish i knew the answer <laughs> um it 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 certainly does um illuminate all sorts of aspects of 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 life and to a lesser extent death in in early medieval ireland we've got to remember i suppose that cranogs were exceptional site types in the first place mm -hmm. that they're not the sort of residents of of most of the ordinary people and it would seem from what we've been talking about today and the research that's going on that the, the particular site at Manulok wasn't was an exceptional cranog as well. Perhaps not, you know, one of the wealthiest, the Lagor cranogs or the Balanderis, but certainly in the in the sort of top rank as well. So mm -hmm. I don't think that whatever we find out from our research at Munya, that it will be telling us about all, all of the people and the ordinary people of say seventh or eighth century Ireland. However, it probably does indicate um in, in various ways that Ireland was more closely connected to other parts of Europe, to Britain and continental Europe than had previously been appreciated by most people. You know, these discoveries of connections with, with France and with England and with elsewhere uh, aren't, aren't entirely new. They were well known about before, but that, this adds another sort of uh, uh, string to that bow, as it were. One of the things that I, I find very interesting is through the paleoenvironmental research that's going on, the looking at the insect remains, the seeds, the charcoal, etc. The the clearer picture that we're getting of what the landscape was like around the site, what plants were growing and what wasn't growing, and the indications that those pieces of information have for our understanding of climate for instance. Mm -hmm. And I, I mentioned several times about the rising and falling levels of the lake, which are almost certainly a reflection of some sort of, well, at least weather developments, if not climate change. And I think that in a, in a bigger picture, and I don't want to make too much of this, but I think in the bigger picture, if we start to understand those developments over the course of several thousand years in an Irish context of changing water levels, changing temperatures and changing climate reflected by the landscape, then we can probably understand a little bit more closely what's going on now and how much of this is part of uh, the, the natural changes that take place and how much of this isn't natural or hasn't been seen before uh, or is unusual and therefore how we might respond to that. We're also getting a lot of information about the diet of the people. Mm. Um, and that's related, of course, to the landscape, because mm. what was provided by the landscape was essentially what they ate. We're getting increasing evidence about the animals that were uh, farmed and husbanded, if that's a word, uh, locally, uh, how they were used and how both the food and the other byproducts, if you like, were used. I mentioned antlers and horns and bones and the use of those mm. things. 
Um, and of course, that's telling us more about the the people and the interaction between the the people on the Cranog and, as we mentioned, the people living in those in those ring forts as well. Those are just a few of the the things that immediately come to mind in terms of uh, some of the bigger questions that we can uh, address. And as the this new phase, I like to call it phase three, if Wood Martin was phase one and John Bradley was phase two, we're maybe phase three of the project. And as this phase progresses, and of course, we're constantly, you know, building on the work that was done by them, standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, I think we're adding more questions to it as well. We're realizing that there are other potential avenues of inquiry that we can take with this with this evidence. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're living in hope that uh, the research that we're doing now will yield great results and so far so good, and that there will be some more aspects to it that remain to be uncovered. Yeah, it sounds like you're getting closer to at least addressing the question of what does it all mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, that yeah. I think, I mean, if it's not on John's, it probably will end up on my headstone. What does it all mean? <laughs> and, you know, there's no there's no answer to that question. Um, yeah. But there is that, you know, constant wondering, mm -hmm. you know, so what is this evidence telling us mm -hmm. about, about the people? And as you ask, what does it tell us? What can this tell us about early medieval Ireland? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's fascinating. And what's the future for the project, Michael? Uh, uh, you know, were for the, both the project itself in terms of the research and 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 so on, but in terms of the site itself and the artifactual assemblage, is there any word that people can go and see anything at this stage, or is that what's hoped for down the line? Yeah, so there's a there's a number of I suppose parts to that. Uh, in terms of this project, our goal is to complete phase three to hand over to the National Museum of Ireland in the correct form and state all of the artifacts properly catalogued and mm -hmm. and uh, prepared, all of the archive, etc., by 2028, mm -hmm. and at the same time and in parallel with the preparation for that to compile a final report and to publish what does it all mean uh, in 2028 as well. Um, and we have had very good support both from the university uh, here in Maynooth and my department, the Department of History, our collaborators in UCD and other individuals, and especially from our main funders, the Royal Irish Academy, also from Creative Ireland, from Meath County Council through the Heritage Office, from the uh, Heritage Council. Um, we have funding support for, for this year and hopefully for next year in place. And we've got a plan then for a number of interim steps through the years. So everything will be going to the National Museum of Ireland. But um, you may be aware of the George Ogan Memorial Heritage Centre in Nobber itself. And that is a project that has been funded uh, recently by a number of different strands of national and local funding. And they have a very active group and an active committee. And we have been liaising with them in terms of getting replica objects made. Mm. Uh, they have got new uh, cabinets and uh, display boards from the National Museum, uh, which they are putting into place in the in their building in Nobber, including a display and uh, uh, some uh, discussions and replica objects from the site. And that will be opening next year. 
um, I I think we need to check this. Um, but that will be somewhere that people can go to actually see some of the uh, the objects and some videos of people creating these replicas based on a, the, the techniques, the tools, the technology that were available to them at that time. So that's another exciting strand, not of our particular project, although it's something that we're uh, delighted to be involved with as well. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. That sounds fantastic. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that, you know, the excavations were left unfinished. Do you ever see a circumstance when there might be new travellers <laughs> travelling away at Mardi Lock, or is yes. that not At this stage, we've got enough to be getting on with. Yes, I, you know, this is an audio uh, podcast, uh, so your listeners won't see me hiding behind my desk here <laughs> at the very thought of going back again. Part of it is very uh, exciting and mm -hmm. in so many ways, and part of it is just daunting. I think the first thing would be we need to we need to get what we already have got from the site in terms of objects and artifacts and information um, properly processed and dealt with before mm. any of that mm. happens. I think that in due course, armed with a very carefully thought out set of research questions mm. that sort of keyhole style archaeology, ex archaeological excavation could take place to address some of the questions, because there is you know, more archaeology to be discovered at the site. There are certainly uh, at least one more Mesolithic null to be to be looked at. And I think in due course, it is almost inevitable that somebody will go back there. Uh, so I'm just writing your name down, Neil, here uh, oh, as God. our <laughs> first volunteer. Um, uh, but, yeah, but not, not for a while, not before 2028. Let's get phase three. No. Let's get. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Uh, phase three first, and then um, I look forward to hearing how phase four goes. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that. But look, Michael, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating site. And as I said from the outset, I think it's a really important example of one of those sites which has been carried out over a number of phases, a number of years, a huge legacy, but bringing everything together, all of these different specialists working with the archive and being able to ask and answer and discover new questions, I, I, I think is a phenomenal model really for what could be done with some of the other sites that we have in a similar or, or, or various kind of states like that. But it's been such a pleasure talking, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much indeed, Neil. Uh, it's really great to be on and uh, really exciting to be part of this project now uh, in, it, in its phase. And well, we'll be answering the question, what does it all mean? So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And I want to thank Michael for taking the time to chat with me today. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly love talking to Michael. I always do. His enthusiasm and his level of knowledge is unbelievable. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting and exciting to hear about a project like the one at Munyer Lock, you know, that's bringing together all of this kind of legacy and bringing lots of different types of skills and specialists looking at things with modern techniques as well amazing model for what can be done um if you did enjoy the episode please do subscribe uh if you're not already and leave us a review that really helps it le helps the likes of apple podcasts or spotify know that we're worth listening to i suppose um and that helps our visibility so more people can find us 
Um, or if you could let us know on social media as well, you can find Abata Heritage on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all the usual kind of places. If you'd like to support us and if you'd like to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland, consider joining Tour. That's our new membership site where we have lots of articles on Irish heritage sites, in itineraries for great days out. We've got talks with different types of experts that you can ask questions to and oh, there's lots more so you can find us at tua.ie that's t-u-a-t-h-a dot i-e but in the meantime i look forward to catching up with you again in a future episode of amplify archaeology podcast take care and mind yourselves goodbye <laughs>